0: Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. As we make our way that direction, uh, let me just remind you where we've been through these last really couple months of studies through these two letters to the Thessalonians. That the Apostle Paul was writing this, to a church that he planted way back in Acts chapter 17, and that he actually only spent three Sundays with. Three Sabbaths, were told, that he got to spend with this church. And so they had very little time with the Apostle Paul, which led him to be concerned, how are these guys doing now that I've been driven out of town? And so as he was concerned, he sent his protege, Timothy, up to check on them. And the report he got back was, look, they're not only doing okay, they're actually thriving. They're doing fantastic. But they do have some questions, some concerns, in particular regarding uh, the rapture of the church. And so Paul took the first letter to talk about, to explain what it looks like as Jesus is going to come back to take the bride of Christ. And so he writes his first letter, and the other piece he wants to encourage them in is that they are not appointed to wrath. They were suffering a tremendous amount of persecution in Thessalonica. People were pressing in on them on all sides. And so he wants to encourage them that, look, uh, just because it's bad now, here's the thing. God hasn't left you or forsaken you. He has not appointed you to wrath. And so he encourages them. And then he has the follow-up letter in uh, the second letter to the Thessalonians, written about 12 months later, Worse still, there's more confusion. Now, I know for you guys, as far as the rapture of church is concerned and the end times, you get it completely. You understand it from front to back, right? Okay, not so much. Same way with the Thessalonican church. They were struggling to get a handle on this. What was also happening is uh, people from the outside began to invade. There were false teachers. Claimed to be bringing words from the Apostle Paul when, in fact, they were forged letters. And one of the things they claim uh, that Paul's writing to in this second letter is that the great tribulation had already begun to happen. Now, this tells you how bad the persecution was, right? Like there was so much persecution, they thought this was it. This must be the great tribulation. But Paul wants to write to encourage them. Now, as he encourages them, something interesting we pointed out is that in the first letter, chapter 1, verse 3, Paul commended the church on three things, their faith, their love, and their hope. He told him, good job in these three areas. Now, when we arrive to the second letter, written 12 months uh, roughly afterwards, Paul says, look, great job in sticking with your faith and with abounding in love. But in verse 3 of chapter 1 of the second letter, he makes no mention of their hope. Why? Because as they are questioning now the word of God, maybe he did leave us here to be persecuted and have his wrath poured out on us. They've begun to lose hope they'd actually lost their hope, which is really what Paul's trying to write this second letter to encourage them to reignite in their lives, a a reignition of the hope that they had once had, that they had now lost. And I shared this with you, that when we question God's word, when we question his character, hope is almost always the first thing to disappear. What do we really have to hope in if it's not in the word of God? That it's unchanging, that it's never going to, he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. And so when we begin to question that, hope gets eroded away. Now, when we studied last week in chapter two, what we saw is Paul specifically addressing the second coming of Christ, the last days is what he was talking about. Now, for many of you, you listen to that and you're like, what in the world just happened? But hopefully you recall as we got to the end of that, this is what Paul was really driving at. I want you to be comforted. That in fact, in the last verses, what he said two different times is, I want this to be your comfort and your consolation. The word is actually, the root word in the Greek is a parakletos. And you find it someplace else in Scripture, Second John chapter 2, verse 1, where John writes, Little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate is the word parakletos. That Jesus Christ the righteous is actually our our advocate, our defense attorney. So we can have hope even in the midst of persecution because we have an advocate. And we have hope for all of eternity. When we stand before the king of kings, we're not standing on our own merits. We're standing there with a defense attorney. So when we've got all the pile of sins, I don't know any of you, uh, a sinner in here, you don't have to raise your hand. You can just nod your head. All right. For the rest of you not nodding your head, you're a liar. So you're guilty too. Check that box. Here's the thing. Uh, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, to stand there and say, Dad, uh, this is one of mine. I've got it covered this time. And so, praise the Lord, we should be comforted by that. And that really is what prophecy should be all about. It's not about destruction and death. It's all about uh, comfort for those who believe him. Now, finally, in this last chapter where we're going to be at, Chapter 3, Paul wants to give them practical application for the restoration of hope. And so Paul's going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 3 by saying, finally. And by the way, anytime Paul writes finally, he has a whole bunch of words left to say. He's a lot like most of the pastors you come into contact with, right? Anytime we say finally, you better buckle up for another 10 minutes at least. It doesn't mean that. Paul's got a whole chapter here after he says finally. Brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. And so Paul's request for these people in Thessalonica is, would you pray? Would you pray for us? And he doesn't, by the way, say, would you pray for the programs? Or would you pray for Children's Church? Or would you pray for anything other than the word of the Lord to go swiftly? That God's word is the thing that actually changes people from the inside out his request is would you pray that the word of God would go swiftly and change people from the inside out and this is what prayer does by the way in the late 1800s, the Metropolitan uh, Tabernacle in London had grown to over 7,000 members. It was really a, a megachurch for that day and age. just a megachurch even to this day. And they were led by a guy named uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Most of you have probably read or at least seen quotes from C.H. Spurgeon. He was known as the Prince of Preachers in London, a beautiful uh, orator. Uh, uh, I know far better than me. Uh, you don't have to nod your head up and down. I believe it. Beautiful orator, the prince of preachers. And so a particular gentleman, a a reporter wanted to do a story on the Metropolitan Tabernacle and its tremendous growth. And he showed up uh, during the week uh, there at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And as he arrived, he sees a man in bib overalls and wearing a hat. He assumes he's the janitor. And so looking at this huge tabernacle, he goes up to the man and he says, hey, I want to know about the power plant. Thinking about how do you heat a building this size? And that day it was all cold fire down in the basement. And so the man says, absolutely. He takes him, the reporter, down the stairs, uh, down into the basement where he's assuming he's going to arrive at the power plant. And the man in bib overalls and the hat opens the door. And what he sees is over a hundred people praying, praying for the services that are going to take place for the weekend. And as the man opens the door, he says, if you want to know where the power plant is located for this church, it's right here. There's a reason that thousands of people gather. It's because a few are showing up every single week to pray for what's going to take place in this church. Now, much to the surprise of that reporter, the man that opened the door that was in the bib overalls uh, was none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He knew the Prince of Preachers right where the power plant for any church is located, and it starts in prayer. It it, it starts in prayer the prayers of the people. It's why every Sunday we gather here at 9.15 in the morning and somewhere 9.15-ish, we start to pray. We pray for this church. And all are invited, by the way. You don't have to have a special invitation. Feel free to come. But we pray for this people, for the folks that are going to come later on. And I believe in large part the reason that Sunday after Sunday more people have shown up is because of the prayers of people who are willing to commit and to come and just lift up this service. And so here's the good news, you were prayed for before you ever arrived. Weeks, months, years from the foundation of the earth, you were supposed to be here today. And so Spurgeon knew this, and Paul knew this as well. Verse 2, he says, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. And so as Paul is asking for prayer for the ministry, he also says, would you please pray for us to be delivered from unreasonable people? And by the way, as you seek to defend uh, this faith that we have, there will always be unreasonable people. But let me encourage you, we have a reasonable faith. What Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says is, Come, let us reason together. For though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. We have a reasonable, understandable faith. And when we come into contact with those that don't want to believe, what you'll find is quickly, they will become very irrational and unreasonable. I love the study of apologetics for this very reason. I like, as a person that loves science, sound reasoning. Uh, to, some of you may be surprised by this, but I have never attended one day of a seminary class. I have, I have no education. The rest of you, you're like, yeah, it shows. It's obvious to all of us. Um, I have a civil engineering degree from the University of Illinois. There is no reasonable reason for me to be up here other than uh, God's word. It's reasonable. And this is what attracted me to a a verse-by-verse style of teaching through the Bible because it finally, for the first time, made sense. It's a reasonable faith that we can reason through. And yet, for those that lack faith completely and entirely, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 22. He says, professing to be wise, they become fools and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and, the, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things that those that profess to be wise will actually be shown to be uh, foolish. And as you get into defending the faith in this study of apologetics, what you'll find is uh, people with all kinds of letters after their name, they become very unreasonable very quickly, especially when they deny uh, the existence of a creator. When you just look at the at the basics, just look at the science behind it, the, the DNA, our complicated structure, it speaks to a designer. There has to be someone who has designed something this intricate, this beautiful, and this is what Paul is addressing. They look out in, in nature all around them and go, yeah, there's no God. Really? I mean, look at how complicated and complex it all is. And so Paul says, please pray that we be delivered from these unreasonable men who do not have faith. I want to make sure to emphasize this. While our faith is reasonable, it is still faith. There is still some step that we have to take. There is some belief. There is a a faith element. And yet if we lack faith, here's the good news. Verse 3. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. If we lose faith, if we lose heart, here's the good news. He does not. He is faithful. He is faithful to come alongside us, to encourage us. And no matter what he puts on our heart, we feel like, Lord, I want to go do this, but I don't have the faith to take that step. Jesus Christ is willing to come alongside and actually do it. If the Lord is behind it, it will happen. It will come to pass. Now, verse 5, Paul says, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. This is something I came up with all on my own, a patience takes waiting. That's right. That's how intelligent I am. Patience takes waiting. And what do we hate more than anything in this country? We hate to wait. We don't like to wait on a cheeseburger. We don't like to wait on the mail. We want things next day, right now, instantaneous. We don't like to wait. And yet, patience requires waiting. And what the enemy wants to say is, we grow more and more impatient, what he wants to whisper in our ears is that as we wait, God must have forgot. Maybe he just forgot about you. He's left you here to to dry up, to dwindle in this place. But the reality is regardless of the situation that I am in, God's word says he will deliver me. In this life or the next, he's going to see me through this spot. He's going to deliver me through this storm and be alongside me. This is what uh, Paul is writing. The Lord is going to direct our hearts into the patience of Christ as we wait for him. Now verse 6, but we command you brethren in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now this verse has caused some people to say, look, this is why our traditions that we have created are justified. But I want to point out that as Paul is writing this, he's talking about traditions founded and rooted in the Bible, in God's word. What are some of those traditions? We looked at it last week, Acts 2.42, which is one that we try to stick to. It is that we will continue to teach the apostles' doctrine, that we will uh, break bread together, that's communion. We will fellowship, and we will pray. These are traditions that come from the Bible. And ones that are extra biblical, what they become is tradition of men. They become more and more things that get in the way of people being able to have access to the throne of God. This is what Jesus addresses in Matthew 23 as he's talking to the Pharisees there. He says these are burdens so heavy that even the people that put them on you, they can't withstand it. They can't handle these burdens. And this is what happens with the traditions of men. Paul is saying we need to stick with the traditions of Scripture. What do you actually find in God's Word taking place? Verse 7, he says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we but we're not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we have not authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Here's the Apostle Paul, which he repeats over and over again through his letters, saying, follow us. You want an example of what this looks like? Follow after what we're doing. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That seems like a very bold statement, and it is bold. But what you all know, because you all have someone that you're ministering to right now. You all have someone that's looking up to you right now, whether you know it or not. They are watching you. They are watching you in your workplace and in your home. They're looking to see how do you handle this situation? And what Paul's saying is, if you want to know how to handle it, uh, watch me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And this example in particular, what Paul's trying to drive at is that as we were with you, we didn't eat your bread free of charge. We instead uh, worked. I got a job is what Paul said. He was a tent maker. And so he, he's saying, look, I did not want to burden you financially. And so I made sure to work with my own hands. It was more important for me to bring you the word of God than to draw a salary. As I was researching this this week, I found it fascinating. And you all find this probably not very encouraging, as I did. (laughs) But in a recent study, Barna showed that four out of five new churches do not make it past five years. Eighty percent of churches fail within the first five years. And the number one reason is because of support. Support being either financial or just people coming alongside leadership, uh, person to person to support them. It's a difficult spot to be in. And Paul knew this. And what he's saying is, look, I'm planning this church and I want it to be successful. And by the way, this is why I'm so thankful, even though some days I'm frustrated by bivocational ministry, I'm thankful that as a church, we've been able to continue to go and operate. And I've been able to have full-time gainful employment. It's what's allowed this church to grow and to thrive in a, in a season where, Many churches are, in fact, shutting down. And Paul, knowing this, he says, I want to set you all up for success in Thessalonica. I want to make sure you've got what you need to be able to get to the next step. Now, this, by the way, he does make the comment, I have the authority to ask for a paycheck. I want to make it clear that if someone is in full-time ministry, it doesn't make it bad. In fact, Paul would go on to say uh, that don't muzzle the oxen whilst trading the grain or a worker is worth his wages. He mentioned that as well and so it's okay for someone to draw a paycheck but as the church is getting started what he is saying is i did not want to take from you until you were established now verse 10 he says for while when we were with you we commanded you this if anyone will not work neither shall he eat now before we get excited especially uh, any rush limbaugh fans get really excited like see this get to work slacker uh, notice what Paul writes is that if any will not work, he will not eat. It does not say those who cannot work. That the Bible is very clear about those who cannot work, who are less fortunate, Uh, specifically concerning widows and orphans. We are called as a church to come alongside and take care of those who cannot work. But for those who will not work, Paul's saying, look, there's freeloaders in here. and, And what we find is that many of these people in Thessalonica, as they are worried or concerned about their return of Christ, and Paul says, yes, Christ is coming back, they just threw their work belt down and said, woo, we're gonna party. Jesus is coming. I'm dropping out of the workplace. Well, it, Paul's saying, that's, that's not at all what I was meaning. I mean, continue to work diligently with what the Lord has put in front of you until the return of Christ. And so he says, if anyone will not work, he shall not eat. But he can Continues, or what I wanted to point out, excuse me, is that work is not a, a sinful state. That in fact, work preexisted sin. If you go with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, this is before the fall. As as God places Adam in the garden, verse 15, he says, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The word tend in the Hebrew is Abod, It means to work or to cultivate the ground. So here's Adam in all perfection. No sin currently exists. And yet God says, uh, I got a job for you, Adam. It's not good for you to just twiddle around and not have anything to do. I find this very encouraging, by the way, as we think about uh, perfection in heaven. Uh, I've been worried in my past that, well, what am I going to do when I get up there? I'm going to have nothing to do. I'm just going to be sitting around all day. I like to get things done. I think you should be reassured. Uh, God has things for us to tend. I'm hoping that I'll be a, a person who gets to pick up coconuts in Hawaii. Just there, out there on the beach. I'm just picking them up. Got something to do. I'm enjoying a little beach and some sun. I'm just kidding about that. But the Lord has things for us to do. He had things for Adam to do. It wasn't until chapter three after the fall, this same word abad was used. But what he said is you're gonna work, but now you're gonna work and you're gonna have sweat on your brow. You're going to have dirt under your fingernails. You're going to have to work really hard. And the ground is going to grow thorns and thistles. So from that point, he had to actually work. But it was a toil. It was difficult. And I find this fascinating when you consider that in the Old Testament, uh, for the Hebrew people, for the Jews, um, they worked six days and then they rested. They worked six days and they got their Shabbat. They worked in order to obtain the rest. But then what you know is that as Christ came and he gave his life, he rose on the first day. And from that point forward, the church, by and large, celebrated Sunday, the first day, as the Lord's Day. And what I love about this picture is where those before Jesus, they had to work in order to obtain a rest. We actually get to rest, and it's an honor to get to go work. It's the rest came first. We we work from a place of rest instead of working, instead of resting from a place of work. There's a a different a change in the mindset. And so Paul continues in verse eleven. He says, For we hear that there are those among you who walk excuse me, there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. There are some there in the church that are just busy stirring it up all the time. These busybodies are going here. They're talking too much. They're going there. Uh, You know, what my pastor used to call these people are bucket mouths. There's people that are just spilling stuff out all the time. They're oversharing with everybody. And this is what's uh, happening in Thessalonica. There are those people that are just stirring up strife and struggle all the time. And what Paul says is, you know what they need to do? Uh, Get to work. They need to get their hands busy and their mouth will probably shut. And so he shares this with them. He continues in verse 12 and says, Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they should work in quietness and eat their own bread. And So he's saying, look, this is the command. I'm going to exhort you, give you strong encouragement. You need to get your hands busy, be quiet, and eat your own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. For if anyone does not obey the word in this epistle, note that that person, and do not keep company with them, that he may be ashamed. And so how do we handle somebody that's a busybody, that's stirring up strife all the time? What Paul says is, uh, just stay away from them. You need to avoid them completely and altogether. Uh, Go away from them that they might be ashamed. They may come back and return to the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 26.20, wonderful advice from King Solomon. He says, Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no tailbearer, strife ceases. Where there's no wood, there's no fire. So if we're not around to listen to, to, to be a part of the tailbearing, the strife that's happening, the fire is going to go out. What Paul also says here in verse 13 that's important that I want to grasp is that we should not grow weary while doing good. And for these Thessalonians, they were tired. Paul writes this because often when we're doing good, uh, we grow weary. We get tired. It becomes exhausting. Paul would say similarly, and we looked at this a few months back in Galatians chapter 6. I'll pick up in verse 7. Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And here's the verse. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. What Paul says to the Galatians, he repeats to the Thessalonians, is that don't grow weary, instead continue planting good seed. Now three laws you'll see in both physical planting and farming as well as spiritual planting and farming it, and they go like this. Uh, first of all, you always reap the same kind that you sow. That's what Paul was addressing in Galatians 6. That if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh. And this makes sense physically, right? You don't go out and plant corn and tomatoes pop up. That's unreasonable. It doesn't make sense. The same thing happens with us in our flesh. We don't uh, sow to the flesh and then something wonderful and spiritual pop out. We have to sow a good spiritual fruit love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. If we plant those things, what we'll find is that will be what the harvest looks like. James 3.18 says, peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, the second law to sowing and reaping after you reap the same kind you sow is that you always reap after you sow. Now, this makes sense to us that You don't plant today, and then immediately corn pops up out of the ground. That's nonsensical. A period of time, germination has to take place before we actually see the fruit of what we planted. And this is difficult for us because, again, we have to wait. There's a time frame that has to pass. Finally, you always reap more than you sow. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 4 with the parable of the sower. He said, uh, some will return 30 some 60 and some 100-fold for what we sow. Now, that's either really encouraging or really terrifying, depending on what you're sowing. If I'm sowing anger and malice and strife and murder and discontentment, I should not be surprised if that's what I reap in return. But it will take a period of time before all this will happen. Even if we've lived a life where we sowed bad things and now we've changed things around and we're sowing good stuff, the reality is it's going to take a period of time to see the fruit, to see the harvest happen. And in the waiting, that's where it gets really hard. And that's where we can begin to question, does God even notice Does he even care how hard I'm working? I know I've had this life, but he changed me from the inside out, and now I've got these things going on. Does he even care that I continue to to sow and sow good things into people all around me? And if you've invested in people, you know how hard it is when you don't see any return. It's difficult, and we we grow weary. And so as I was thinking about that this week, I ended up in Numbers chapter 7. You guys will be really encouraged to know that Numbers chapter 7 is the second longest chapter in the entire Bible, behind Psalm 119. Now, good news, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. But it is in this time frame where Moses is bringing the nation of Israel from Mount Sinai. They've been there over a year. They've received the law of God. They've been given direction by God on how to construct the tabernacle. And they're getting ready to leave Mount Sinai and head for the promised land. And as they're getting ready to go, here's what happens is that each of the tribes send a leader from their tribe to go and present an offering. And in verse 12, And one who offered his offering on the first day was Nashon, the son of Aminadab from the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver platter, the weight of which was 130 shekels, and one, bowl of, uh, one silver bowl, 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Both of them... A full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one lamb of the first year of the burnt offerings, one kid of goats as a sin offering, and the offering of the peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in the first year, and that was the offering of Nashon, the son of Adminadab. Now, are you ready for the next guy? He's gonna, what you're gonna find is the next tribe is going to come up and they're going to give an offering that is identical to the tribe of Judah and the third day and the fourth day and the fifth day and the sixth and all the way to the twelfth day. Each one of these offerings listed out in detail and they were identical. And as I read through my Bible and my impatient self, I'm like, Lord, Couldn't you have redacted this thing? I mean, cut it down a little bit and go, here's 12 dudes and here's all that each one of them gave. I I could have taken the second longest chapter in the Bible and made it one of the shortest chapters in all the Bible, just with a few edits. And yet, what I was moved by this week is God intentionally didn't simplify this chapter because he cared that much about every single gift that was given it meant that much that he took up valuable real estate in his word to make sure you knew that these men, these tribes, these people, they gave everything they had to King, to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the same is true, by the way, of everything we give to our Heavenly Father. He sees it all as a gift from us to him. It's no different than this morning. I got, I think, my 38th picture of a flower from Madeline. I think I have more pictures of flowers than I know what to do with. And yet, it meant something to me because it meant something to her. You see what I'm saying? And the same is true with our Heavenly Father. In fact, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, says this, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name. And that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God is not unjust. He has not forgotten one single gift. One single amount of time that you have spent or invested in someone. Even if you didn't see the fruit of that return. This is why the Apostle Paul says, look, keep going. Don't grow weary. Keep pressing in. Because in time you will see a harvest of righteousness. And what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 is this, that everything that's done in silent that you think nobody sees, nobody notices, nobody cares. What he says is that the Father is going to reward it for all to see. That for all of eternity, people are going to know. They're going to be able to see the reward that you receive for a good work that's been done. So don't let the enemy steal that joy that you have. Continue to press into him. Now, verse 15, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now he's speaking to those who have become busybodies, the ones that have disrupted the church. What he's saying is for those that are struggling or being disorderly, don't count him as an enemy, but instead admonish him as a brother. The purpose behind admonishing a brother is not to see condemnation, but to see restoration. So my suggestion is if you want to come alongside and admonish someone, uh, first of all, you need to make sure you've invested plenty in them before you do it. Uh, Secondly, make sure you've got a towel around your waist and a wash basin in your hands. Be prepared to wash some feet. Be prepared to get down there and get dirty. Be willing to come alongside and clean a brother or a sister up and build them up. This is why Paul says that we need to admonish them so that they can be restored as a brother. Finally, in verse 16, he says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul is with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. As Paul began this letter, he said, grace and peace be to you, brethren. As he wraps up this letter, he says, peace and grace be to you. He bookends uh, this epistle with grace and with peace, with peace and with grace. And what I find interesting is the world is all the time talking about peace. All this peace being offered, peace in the Middle East, peace in this new treaty, peace in this new Law, Peace from all these people you can have all around you, and yet it never seems to bring about peace. (laughs) Because it's always coming from sinful man. It's never coming from the Lord of peace. What Paul's saying is, I'm praying for you to have peace, not from some tree or some law or legislation, but I want you to have peace from the very Lord of peace. And so today, I want to ask you this question. Do you have peace? And if you don't have peace, a couple things to consider. First of which, um, have you put your trust in the Lord of peace, the Prince of peace? When Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem before he would give his life for you and I, as He is uh, headed that direction, he looks out over the city in Luke chapter 19, and he cries. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you'd only known the things that bring about your peace the visitation of Christ that was to bring peace and yet they rejected him. They didn't know the Lord of peace. And the reality is they would endure a tremendous tribulation. 70 AD, just a few decades later, the entirety of Jerusalem and Israel would be obliterated by the Roman army. They didn't understand their peace. It was right there at their doorstep and yet they rejected him. And so the first question I would ask you is, do you put your trust in the Lord of peace. Second question that's tied to it is if you've trusted in the Lord of peace, have you let him be the Lord of peace? The word Lord in the Hebrew is the word Adonai, and what it means is a master. And in this country, we struggle greatly with having a, a master because we like our rights, right? In America, we love our rights. And you know, what Jesus continually encourages in is to accept him as master, to actually give up our rights to him and trust him in doing so, that he will guide and lead and direct and bring about peace in every situation. But the problem, at least for me, is I allow him to be Lord until I see a little bit of peace and then I take it back real quick. I'll take that one, Lord. Thank you for getting me to this spot. And before long, there is no peace at all in that situation. I don't trust him enough to let him have and be Lord in every single area of my life. But what he wants to do is bring not only peace, but also contentment. I have had the the privilege of being around some of the most wealthy of men and women. Tremendous leaders of companies. And what I've been shocked by is how many of them are not content. It is never, ever enough. What Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 6 is that godliness with contentment is great gain. That what the world misses completely is that allowing Jesus to be our Lord, to serve him completely, he will allow us to be godly and content and then we will have all the success we'll ever need. Peace will rule and reign in that area if I just give it to the Lord of peace. Finally here in verse 17 Paul says, excuse me, in verse 17, Paul says, I'm signing this with my own hand. I love that because he's willing to get involved. This is me. It's really me, guys. I'm giving you my signature so you know where this letter came from. And as he concludes, he says, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, be with you all. Amen. Which means, so be it. You see, for the issue with the Thessalonians is they lost hope. They had lost hope. Hope because they question the word of God. And what Paul brings them back to is remembering grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's unmerited favor. We, we get to receive that which we didn't earn and we certainly do not deserve because of his ultimate sacrifice. And grace becomes the very vehicle that hope operates in. We can have hope because of the grace of Christ, not because of any great works that we've done but simply because he loved us enough to give his life for us. And what grace wants to communicate to each and every one of you here today is that he loves you, he has not forgotten you, and that his promise is to deliver. Peace that passes all understanding. That's what the byproduct of hope that actually looks like. And one of the surest signs of a mature believer is one who has peace. I look at people in my life, and I'm, I know I'm not supposed to be jealous, but I'm a little bit jealous when I see peace like that. I go, man, how, how do they have such peace in that situation? How are they handling that with such grace? And what I find time and time again is an incredibly mature believer. And they're mature because they know their dad's got it covered. My dad has got this cover from beginning to end, even in the middle of this storm that I'm in. And there is no greater peace than knowing that. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for being our Adonai, for being our master. Lord, would you help us to have a loose grip on those reins that we so quickly want to take back a hold of Father, thank you for being with us consistently throughout even the times where we question, did you forget? Thank you for the encouragement that we should not grow weary. That every single gift we have given, every tear that's been shed, every uh, toil, every effort that's been made on your behalf, you have seen it all. That what your word says is you are a meticulous bookkeeper that you're writing all of it down in the book of life. So, Father, we thank you for that reality. Thank you for the reminder of how much you love us. Lord, please let us acknowledge you as the Lord of peace as we go out this week. In Jesus' name.